Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that is anti-war, anti-state, and anti-borders. Today we have Laura, Zoe, and Jules. And today we are, unsurprisingly probably, talking about the war in Ukraine. Of course, this has been on everyone's radar over the past week, and there's a lot of misinformation happening, particularly in the West, so we will do our best to cover this topic. Also, of course, this conflict is unfolding before our very eyes, so please continue to look at independent media sources as we move forward. Before we fully get into it, I want to start by acknowledging the white supremacist way many folks in the West have spoken about and reacted to the war in Ukraine, mainly by prioritizing it and talking about its horrors by saying shit on major networks like, quote, these are prosperous middle class people. They aren't refugees from the Middle East or, quote, this isn't Iraq or Afghanistan. Kiev is a relatively civilized city where you wouldn't expect this to happen, unquote. Um, so it's important to know that while we 100% should be taking in Ukrainian refugees, we also should have that same policy for other refugees in crisis. Imagine... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine being a Syrian, Palestinian, Afghan, Somali, Yemeni, or Haitian refugee and watching the U.S. accept all these white refugees with open arms. It's pretty horrifying. The U.S. military is the number one cause of people becoming refugees in the world, so it's important to remember while bigwigs in the U.S. are condemning these actions, they also expand the U.S. military at every turn. We are going to get into the attacks that the U.S. has perpetrated at the same time of the, as the invasion of Ukraine a little bit later, and I think it's important for us to hold both of these things as truths. What's happening in the Ukraine is horrifying, and what's happening to Russian protesters risking their lives to speak out against the war is horrifying, and the way the U.S. and the West are reacting to these horrors is different than how they react to other horrors, which matters. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. Um, I want to just start us out just with like an overview of some of Ukraine's older history, which I think is helpful context. At least it was for me to do some more research on this. And also, I think as like part of Eastern Europe and like the former USSR, it's something that is not really focused on in most US education. Um, so I just think it's something that like a lot of us don't know as much about as we could. Um, I'm definitely including myself in that. So the territory of what's now Ukraine has always been a pretty important trade route. Initially, about a thousand years ago, because it was situated between the water, the Baltic Sea on one side, and the Byzantine Empire on the other. So throwback to Byzantine Empire days. Um, it was formed initially as a state called Rus, with Kiev being this central hub of trade along the Dnieper River, which connects the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. And then this area of territory that was Ukraine, is now Ukraine, was Rus at the time, is in between those two. Um, and I should say also that Crimea specifically, which has been sort of a key territory in more recent conflicts, has always been a uniquely important piece of land because it sort of marks the end of that route on the Black Sea. Um, so later on in the 1200s, as trade routes changed, 
the area experienced economic decline. And this is kind of a period of time where the territory got further divided up into these different states. Um, so Belarus, which is a neighboring country, um, formed as its own state during that time. Um, and then Ukrainian territories were sort of split up and controlled by different governments, including the rulers and territories that were precursors to Poland, Lithuania, and Mongolia. Um, and this kind of like different powers fighting over this territory is sort of a recurring theme um, that we're still seeing today. So fast forwarding a bit to the 1700s is when the area largely came under control of the Russian Empire. Um, and typically, as Russia experienced different conflicts, that would sort of result in increased policies to try to bring Ukraine and all of its territories under this one unified culture, um, sometimes in ways that were violent and harmful to people who had non-dominant culture. Um, so during World War I, for example, the use of the Ukrainian language was banned entirely. Um, and there was understandably a lot of pushback to this. And during this time, there were major protests for Ukrainian independence. Um, when the USSR was formed, actually one reason that it was organized in that way as a union of states rather than like one giant territory all called Russia, um, it was because of this movement in Ukraine and the specific question of like, would Ukraine be its own state or just be fully absorbed into Russia? So Soviet Ukraine was technically recognized as an independent state, even though in practice it wasn't fully independent from Russia. And during this time, indigenous Ukrainian cultures and languages and religions were more encouraged by the Russian government. And a lot of Ukrainian artists started to look basically towards like a closer cultural relationship with Europe as a way for Ukraine to develop its own cultural identity separate from Russia. Um, this is kind of when we see the beginning of this divide between like Russian influence and Western European influence over Ukraine. Um, at the same time, poor and working class people in Ukraine still experienced significant oppression during this period of time. Um, under Stalin's control in the 1930s, around 4 million Ukrainians died during the Great Famine. That was out of about 5 million total deaths in the USSR. So that was something that really disproportionately impacted Ukraine. Um, and Ukrainian religions and cultures were considered suspect by the USSR and many academics and artists who supported Ukrainian self-determination were jailed or executed during this time. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting is that the suppression was extreme enough that when Nazi Germany invaded Ukraine in the 1940s, some like not extremely far right Ukrainians initially viewed the Nazis as saviors who would be natural allies against Russia and Poland because they saw control from Russia as so harmful. Um, but it quickly became clear that this was not the case as Ukrainians who attempted to establish a temporary independent government were quickly arrested and sent to concentration camps by Nazi forces. Um, at least 1.5 million Ukrainian Jews were murdered during the Holocaust and around 2.5 million Ukrainians were enslaved and forced to work in labor camps during that time as well. Um, so that is also, you know, a global tragedy, but something that had this really specific impact on Ukraine's identity as well. Um, so despite the obvious flaws in collaborating with the Nazis, some Ukrainian political leaders continued to view Nazi collaboration as a legitimate political strategy, 
um, perhaps most notably Stefan Bandera, who folks may have heard of. Um, it's not hard to see how an ethno-nationalist project devoted to this idea of Ukrainian purity could ally with a movement devoted to murdering Jewish people and others who are seen as conflicting with German purity as well. Um, and I think, as we'll see a little bit going into the more modern day, this dichotomy between a Russian Ukraine and then a more right-wing ethno-nationalist version of Ukraine um, that specifically has these anti-Semitic underlying views um, has continued to be an important political framework um, and like organizing principle in the country. So after World War II, Ukraine came back under Soviet control and it wasn't until the Soviet Union was dissolving in December of 1991 that Ukraine finally gained formal independence and became its own independent state. <laughs> its own another clusterfuck of government. Um, I saw I yes. saw this <laughs> I saw this TikTok this week that please don't cancel me for repeating a joke about the situation, but it was basically like the person was like, I asked my brother what's happening in the Ukraine. And he said, um, you know, think of it as like Russia is Ukraine's um, former abusive boyfriend. They used to live together. Um, then they moved out. And now Russia will not leave the Ukraine alone. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, yes. that's what it's I learned basically on TikTok. Like, And also this was like a long term relationship. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah, they, they were together for a while. <laughs> see uh, i'm hip that's absolutely. what the kids are talking about <laughs> absolutely um yeah so like we're gonna jump ahead a little bit from 1991 to 2014 basically gonna talk about some stuff that led up to the conflict we're, we're seeing today so in 2014 ukraine anger at a corrupt status quo and opportunistic far-right extremists toppled the government in the maiden revolution and today's crisis in Ukraine cannot be understood without understanding this recent history. And I'm also realizing I might be saying that wrong. Is it Maidan? That's a good question. I actually don't know. I think in my head I was saying it Maidan, but... Maidan? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I think so. Sure. <laughs> you know, M-A-I-D-A-N. Pronounce it... I feel like Maidan. Maidan. Sounds right to me, but I'm not sure either. I don't know. Yeah. Maidan and or Maidan. But... <laughs> Yes, Perfect. absolutely. Um, so, yeah, after Ukrainian independence, um, there continued to be this divide between Ukrainian political leaders and just, you know, regular Ukrainian citizens who wanted to ally with Russia and those who wanted more distance. Um, and in a lot of cases, distance from Russia also went along with seeking support from Western European powers instead. Um, so going into sort of the more recent history. In 2004, there was a presidential election between Viktor Yanukovych, who had support from Russian President Vladimir Putin, and on the other side, Viktor Yushchenko, who ran as basically an anti-corruption candidate. Um, so Yanukovych, the Russian-supported candidate, won. But after these mass protests that were called the Orange Revolution, after Yushchenko's campaign colors, the election was annulled, and then Yushchenko became president. So the sort of more distant from Russia candidate was put into office. Um, I think it's important to say that all of these election results were extremely narrow. Like the, the initial election 
neither of them got a majority of the vote. It was just like pluralities of the vote. Um, and support between these two political strains continued and still continues to be very divided um, and just very complex for people. Um, by the next election in 2010, the more pro-Russia candidate Yanukovych won, again, by a very narrow margin. Um, and then the opposition leader, Yulia Tymoshenko, refused to recognize the results. She was sent to prison on corruption charges, which many people felt were exaggerated for political motives um, because she was sort of the leader of the opposition at that time. So that's sort of the main lead up to the current events um, have been Yanukovych's presidency. So he adopted more pro-Russian policies like ending Ukraine's attempt to join NATO, um, making a deal with the Russian military to use Crimea as a base in exchange for economic support. Um, however, he did also do some things that maybe were less popular with sort of the pro-Russian um, part of the political sphere. Um, he tried to establish trade relations with Europe, which a lot of people have interpreted as him sort of trying to navigate between these two powers of the EU and Russia who are sort of fighting over influence of Ukrainian trade. Um, and I think it makes sense that, you know, a leader of this country that's caught in between these two is sort of trying to play both sides a little bit. Um, but after Russia threatened economic sanctions for this EU deal, Yanukovych really suddenly canceled the deal. Um, and that is what sparked off these 2014 Maidan protests um, or the Maidan revolution. So that deal being canceled was the immediate catalyst, but the protests obviously were about other things as well. Um, a lot of concerns about government corruption um, and lack of resources for everyday people, um, and essentially that the government wasn't representing the actual interests and needs of the Ukrainian people. So some of this was not from any explicitly far right or like nationalist standpoint, but just people who were concerned that cutting off trade with the entire EU would lead to a lack of resources and like put Ukrainians in a more dangerous position. Um, and the protests also grew significantly after there was violent police crackdown against them, which I think suggests that a lot of protesters were most upset about this like state violence against any form of dissent. Um, that said, there was also a significant right-wing strain to this protest movement. Many of the most active protesters were supporters of the far-right Svoboda political party um, and this far-right Ukrainian coalition called the Right Sector, which has its origins with Ukrainians who allied with Nazi Germany. Um, and those were folks who pushed the protests to become more violent. And this wasn't just violence against the police or the state. There's some evidence that far-right demonstrators fired openly on crowds of protesters in an attempt to just generally like inflame the situation. Um, so they also brought this sort of nationalist Ukrainian rhetoric and mission to the protests that was not necessarily allied with what all protesters were motivated by, but it did become a pretty significant part of the overall protest messaging and imagery. Um, there was a lot of anti-Semitic rhetoric and people equating Russian control of Ukraine with quote unquote Jewish mafia control of Ukraine. 
Um, and this sort of messaging might sound familiar to US listeners. I think it's not dissimilar from the sort of like New World Order, George Soros related conspiracy theories. Um, and these conspiracy theories actually do share a common origin and inspiration from the influential anti-Semitic rant, Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was written by a far-right Russian author. So Fucking anyway, as, hell. I know. <laughs> it's also just, I don't know, it's interesting because I think that's just a, a text that I've heard so much about and I, I didn't realize that it was written by a Russian author mm. um, and that it sort of specifically comes from like that context of anti-Semitism, mm. which is interesting. But yeah, it's it's bad. Um, so anyway, as as this far right violence within these protests escalated, protesters were able to take control of several police stations and government buildings. Um, and eventually the president Yanukovych fled to Russia and right wing forces took temporary control of the government. They immediately granted immunity for any violence committed during the protests. Um, and meanwhile, the U.S. was actively backing the protesters and supporting the far-right Svoboda Party in its efforts to take control of the government. Um, I think unsurprisingly, the U.S. saw this as an opportunity to solidify Western control of Ukraine and erode what was seen as Russia's influence through Yanukovych being president. Um, at the same time, Russia also capitalized on the chaos in Crimea, where Russian military forces were already located. So there were pro-Russian counter-protests happening there, and Putin sent in more troops to try to take control of Crimea while the government was sort of in disarray. Um, meanwhile, the EU helped organize emergency elections, which with U.S. influence led to this pro-Western, anti-Russian billionaire Petro Poroshenko being elected. Uh, Putin eventually withdrew his order that the Russian military was legally allowed to enter Ukraine, but in practice, military conflict between Russia and the new Western-backed Ukrainian government over Crimea continued. Um, in the 2019 presidential elections, Vladimir Zelensky won over Poroshenko, and he basically ran as a pro-peace candidate who would try to achieve some sort of lasting ceasefire agreement with Russia rather than continue the conflict. Um, and he won in a landslide, unlike the other elections I've mentioned that had very narrow margins of victory, um, which I think suggests that peace was a very big priority for a lot of everyday people. Um, so a peace agreement was reached, which had widespread popularity in Ukraine. But of course, it's now clear that Russia has decided not to honor that. And that is basically the like background context leading up to where we are now. Where do y'all fall on the everyone being like, because for me, I'm like, okay, yeah, whatever, Zelensky, but everyone's literally obsessed. Like, obviously, it's more <laughs> libs. Like, I'm yeah, being really hot. upset about the people that are horny for him. Yeah, it's not, it makes me upset. It's embarrassing. I'll be honest. I had heard about it. I didn't really know what he looked like. So I was just looking him up while Jules was talking because I had a feeling we would talk about this. And it's embarrassing. Yeah. No, it's get it, get it together. Get it together. And <laughs> it's it's literally like no good presidents. How, how many times do we right. have to say this? I mean, yeah, absolutely that. It also is funny. Like, it almost reminds me of, like, the obsession, like, Lib's obsession with Biden, where it's like, mm. yes, he wasn't, like, 
an explicitly U.S. backed like puppet candidate, but that doesn't mean he's like great. It's just like slightly better than what was there before. Perhaps exactly. I also um, think he's like hot, right? Well, I actually, pe- yeah, I think people isn't do that think a whole thing? I people are like cannot confirm. Nor- I mean, people are though- thirsting over him for sure. <laughs> I can't tell if it's like out of an actual physical attraction right. or if it's because they they're like oh it's hot that you're just attracted to his mind yeah like <laughs> oh you are standing up to russia like that's so hot man oh it's like be like big dick energy yeah yeah I, that's the vibe still embarrassing get. yeah no <laughs> honestly like i cannot confirm nor deny what it is because i am just grossed out by it generally <laughs> by the whole idea so i can't Remember? tell what, what's in the minds of these people but while we're while we're going down this this path do y'all remember the like beto leg cramping fiasco <laughs> yes i was just gonna say something about that actually i what i really would love people to understand is that there must be so few politicians who are like even passable at sex like i think overall most politicians <laughs> must be very very bad at sex and i oh, think absolutely. we just need to stop like i don't know like direct your fantasies elsewhere please anyway <laughs> anyway thank you so much for that that really really is helpful for understanding the importance of what's happening today Obviously, as we know, what Putin is doing is fucked up. Um, However, I do want to talk about the role of the West in this conflict. You'll hear about, you'll hear a lot about the West um, in general right now. And I think it's important to briefly revisit what that really means. Um, In Edward Said's Orientalism, he discusses a worldwide hegemonic understanding where there are essentialist assumptions of Western superiority over Eastern cultures. These assumptions serving the ruling world powers are manifested through all forms of discourse, including literature, research, and conversation, both due to and in order to perpetuate the power of these dominant groups. This idea has been used as an excuse for Western oppression and domination of the East for material gain. We see Western supremacy everywhere, but especially in global structures like the United Nations, International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank. Obviously, we at Season of the Bitch do not believe in Western superiority. However, we understand it as a way in which the world powers operate. So it's a framework we have to understand. So let's get into the role of the West leading up to this invasion. As political scientist Stephen Walt recently put it, quote, one can believe that Russia's present actions were wholly illegitimate and also believe that a different set of U.S. policies over the past several decades would have made them less likely, unquote. The army of war hawk pundits that predicted and salivated over a Russian invasion seized on the decision Putin made to send, quote, peacemakers into Ukraine before the full-scale invasion as vindication for their usual talking points. Putin is Hitler. He seeks to revive the glory of the Soviet Union. He can't be reasoned with and only a show of force, not further appeasements or uh, negotiations that reward his behavior can make him stop. It's just so much to unpack, so we're just not going to get to it all. Just know that. Um, the West has got some, like, because some of some of it, like, seeking to revive parts of the Soviet Union are obviously, like, sort of legitimate, but, like, soaked in the con- greater context of, like, oh, this person is just evil because of all these things rather than understanding, like, 
the way in which the world has pinned itself against uh, or like the Western powers have pinned themselves against Russia over time. Right. So in October of 2021, Russia began moving troops and military equipment near its border with Ukraine, reigniting concerns over a potential invasion. Commercial satellite imagery, social media posts, and publicly released intelligence from November and December 2021 showed armor, missiles, and other heavy weaponry moving toward Ukraine with no official explanation. By December, more than 100,000 Russian troops were in place near the Russia-Ukraine border. In mid-December 2021, Russia's foreign ministry issued a set of demands calling for the United States and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, to cease any military activity in Eastern Europe and Central Asia, to commit against further NATO expansion toward Russia, and to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO in the future. Limits to NATO's eastward drift, after all, had long been a sore point, not just for Putin, but even pro-Western Russian elites for years, something that various U.S. officials and thinkers had once openly recognized as understandable. The United States and other NATO allies rejected these demands and warned Russia that they would impose severe economic sanctions if Russia invaded Ukraine. The United States sent additional military assistance to Ukraine, including ammunition, small arms, and other defensive weaponry. So again, knowing that Moscow is now threatening military action against Ukraine if its objections to NATO enlargement continued to be ignored, what did the Western officials do? They refused to budge on the matter again and again as the months wore on, even as absurdly they acknowledged Ukraine wasn't joining the alliance anytime soon. In early February of this year, um, Biden ordered around 3,000 U.S. troops to deploy to, to deploy to Poland and Romania, which are NATO countries that border Ukraine, to counter Russian troops stationed near its border with Ukraine and reassure NATO allies. Satellite imagery showed the largest deployment of Russian troops to its border with Belarus since the end of the Cold War. Negotiations between the United States, Russia, and European powers, including France and Germany, did not result in a resolution. While Russia released a statement claiming to draw down a certain number of troops, reports emerged of an increasing Russian troop presence at the border with the Ukraine. So again, obviously, this doesn't rationalize Putin's behavior. Like, it's extremely messed up that Putin was growing a military during that time. But literally, um, you know, in, in these types of situations, the thing that he asked for was um, completely dismissed, and the U.S. responded by sending a military presence to the border of Ukraine. Again, obviously not justification for invading a nation. However, it's just like the audacity of the West being like, let's defensively put troops here and let's not listen to why you don't want um, this nation to join NATO um, and then like be shocked when you do invade. Yeah. Speaking of fraught alliances, um, my pets are on one right now. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Um, they are, they're, they're doing okay. Brooklyn's on the desk. Pisces is under the desk, but there was a moment when they were trying to decide who got to record. Um, anyway, <laughs> it's going fine. Um, also, I just wanted to say about people being horny, I thought we could take a quick minute to to talk about the Putin poem. Oh my god, yeah. Please. 
Well, it's actually, um, I, for some reason, I feel like I have a personal investment in this because I, like, watched this movie that I think is from, like, 10 years ago, but I just saw it that stars that actress. And then I was like, oh, God. Like, it was she's, really like, good horny movie, for but... Putin, right? Like, I, it's horny. I mean, it's it's definitely horny. I'll say that. I don't know who she's horny for, but <laughs> it's very strange. Anyway. Thought it was worth noting. If you haven't seen it, don't look it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm but in that if camp. You, if <laughs> but you, you haven't seen it, no. Google like horny Putin poem. I think, think it will come up. Do you want me to read you the first few lines? Yes, please. Okay. I do have it pulled up in case this moment came. <laughs> <laughs> I am so happy because I don't want to look it up. <laughs> Dear President Vladimir Putin, I'm so sorry that I was not your mother if i was your mother you would have been so loved oh i did Held see the this arms i saw of joyous this. light never would this story's plight the world unfurled before our eyes a pure demise of nations sitting peaceful under a night sky oh my god i literally blocked this from my memory i read it on like instagram and i was like absolutely Wait, but you, okay but you didn't watch the original performance no Okay, well, that was my best rendition. No, of her. that's incredible. I that terrible, horrifying. Yeah. Voice. But yes, <laughs> thank you so much. Anyway, now we're going to talk about when the recent conflicts started. So, on February twenty fourth, Russia's military launched an invasion of Ukraine. Overnight, explosions rocked the capital, Kiev, with reports of shelling, missile strikes, and gunfire across Ukraine, which has also come under an intense cyber attack. In the weeks and days leading up to the Russian invasion, Ukrainian websites were defaced and taken offline, and data-wiping mal- malware was unleashed on government systems. In the initial attacks, Ukraine's government reported 40 Ukrainian soldiers and 10 civilians have been killed, including 18 reportedly killed in a missile attack on Ukraine's southern Odessa region. Putin has made clear the military objective of the operation, the complete surrender of the Ukrainian army. The political plan remains unclear, but perhaps more likely means the establishment of a pro-Russian government in Kiev. The Russian leadership assumes that resistance will quickly be broken and that most ordinary Ukrainians will dutifully accept the new regime. The social consequences for Russia itself have also been have already been severe. In the morning, even before Western sanctions were announced, Russian stock exchanges collapsed and the fall in the ruble broke all records. Again, we will revisit that later as it relates to other global conflicts. So the Ukrainian president Zelensky almost immediately declared martial law, saying the government would hand out weapons to everyone who was willing and able to defend Ukraine's sovereignty. So um, a little bit about what is martial law and what it means for Ukrainian people. So when martial law is invoked, military officials and not civilian leaders make and apply the law. This means that Ukrainian soldiers, not police, are responsible for enforcing laws. That means that ordinary civilians could be tried in military tribunals as opposed to civilian courts if they're accused of breaching martial law. So then on February 27th, Putin ordered Russian nuclear deterrent forces to be put on high alert in a dramatic escalation of tensions with the West over Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Putin said on Sunday that leading NATO powers had made, quote, aggressive statements, unquote, while imposing hard hitting financial sanctions against Russia and himself. The order raises the threat that the tensions could lead to the use of nuclear weapons. 
Uh, so obviously this is still something that is unfolding day by day. So we already like we've already had to change what was written here like multiple times. Um, and by the time you listen to this, things may have already changed again. So as of this recording on March 2nd, fighting has caused over 100 civilian over 100 civilian casualties and pushed tens of thousands of Ukrainians to flee to neighboring countries. In the latest, satellite imagery showed a 40-mile-long Russian military convoy advancing on Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. Today, a Russian missile killed 10 people in the center of Ukraine's second-largest city, Kharkiv, um, which was according to emergency responders in the area. Talks between Russian and Ukrainian envoys yesterday were inconclusive and are set to resume in the coming days. Ukraine applied for European Union membership, and President Zelensky called for support in an address to the European Parliament. Meanwhile, the International Criminal Court announced it would open an investigation into war crimes in Ukraine. Also, Turkish President Erdogan said Turkey will apply the Montreux Convention, which allows it to prevent warships from entering the Bosporus and Dardanelles Straits to avoid escalation in the war in Ukraine. Okay, so that's kind of like the 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 war brass tacks, um, but there's like other things that are happening as a result of this conflict. So one of those things is that there's been mass protests in Russia, around the world, really, but mo- in my opinion, most notably in Russia. So, um. Putin had said that there is broad support for the invasion of Ukraine um, that he like as he was announcing it um, on before dawn last Thursday morning. But by evening, thousands of people in cities around Russia had defied police threats to take to central squares and protest against the military campaign. As of this recording, at least 6,840 people have been detained at anti-war protests since the invasion began on February 24th, according to the OVD Info Protest Monitoring Group. Um, and most of those arrests were made in Moscow and St. Petersburg, where the crowds were the loudest. But there was like at least 56 um, cities involved. And... <clears throat> Just as a reference, um, the policy is you go to jail for 20 years um, for this type of thing. So the the um, I guess like that's why it's so impressive to me that this is happening, because it's like the amount of risk that these people are taking is is a life changing risk. OK, so, of course, also as a result of this, um, there is a refugee crisis on our hands. Um, as of today, more than 875,000 Ukrainians have fled the country since the beginning of Moscow's assault, said the UN. Yeah, so according to the Polish government, and this was an article that I read, the articles from February 27th, so this these numbers are surely higher by now, but at that time, 115,000 people had crossed just over into the um into over the Polish border into Poland. So currently everyone from Ukraine is allowed entry into Poland, whether or not they have valid passports. Um, Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, and Moldova also currently open their borders to Ukrainians. However, that doesn't mean that it's by any means an easy thing to do. The wait at many borders is so long that it's taking people over 24 hours or more to be able to 
actually enter Poland and other countries. So it's currently very, very cold there. And there's really limited access to, to food when crossing. There are volunteers handing out supplies, but um, I mean, it's a super taxing thing to do. And obviously there's a lot of things there with um, people have different abilities and not being able to potentially not eat for 24 hours. Like that's a really taxing thing on your body. So it's still a lot of barriers to do that. Um, but it's estimated that the total number of people that will be displaced by this war could be between one to 5 million. And as Laura said, it's already pretty close to 1 million. Um, I also want to mention how COVID is, is complicating this process too. So the past few months have been, um, numbers have been really high in Ukraine around COVID and that's in big part due to the lack of access for vaccines. So only about 36% of Ukrainians are vaccinated and, um, you know, having people at crowded borders for 24 hours and then entering new spaces and being in shelters and all of these things can have devastating effects on the spread of COVID. Um, and if you would like to know why more Ukrainians are not vaccinated, you can go back to our episode on the vaccine patent to understand why that's Joe Biden's fault too. (laughs) (laughs) But just to be clear, so that's not like people's personal responsibility. Like they have not had access to the vaccine and therefore COVID rates have been very high. And another thing I wanted to talk about when we're talking about the refugee crisis is how differently Europe and the U.S. are treating these white, mostly Christian refugees than we treat um, black and brown refugees. So, for example, a few months ago, Poland constructed a $400 million wall to keep out the predominantly Muslim asylum seekers that um, were coming from Belarus. And over the past few years, Hungary passed laws criminalizing support for asylum seekers and limiting the right to asylum and has allowed police to automatically expel any unauthorized migrants. In 2015, the influx of Syrian refugees fueled the rise of these populist anti-immigration and far-right parties um, across Europe. And yeah, so as we know, these are very similar patterns to what's been happening in the U.S. <laughs> That's why I especially wanted to mention the wall, because I think that a lot of people think only Trump has this idea of like, let's build walls at borders. But in fact, it is a pretty popular um, populist anti-immigration trend. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I know Laura's going to talk more about the, the discrepancies and the response from the West on on this war and refugee crisis versus what we've been seeing in years past. Oh, exactly. (laughs) Years past and present. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So the war has triggered swift condemnation by several countries, um, immediate sanctions by the United States and other countries targeting Russian banks, oil refineries, and military exports and marathon emergency talks at the UN security council. So it's really worth noting how people love to make some places seem like other and other places seem like the same. This is the exact thing that Edward Said gets at in his in his book, Orientalism, the almost worldwide tribalism that ends up taking place, where Western and white values are one thing and everything else is demonized. For example, the atrocities experienced in Palestine have been going on for decades without any moves towards sanction and boycotts from Western elites 
entities, sorry, from Western entities. Israel is seen as a Western government, while Palestine is not. So it's important to remember that in atrocities like this, that it's not that atrocities like this are somehow new or haven't been going on elsewhere. This is gaining a lot of attention because Ukraine is seen as a white European nation. One small and clear example of this is that the state of Oregon is considering divesting their Russian holdings. Friend of the pod Olivia out in Portland tweeted that Oregon Investment Council has repeatedly told activists, unions, and members of Congress that they can't divest from the Israeli spyware company NSO, which has been blacklisted by the U.S. government because they, quote, can't make political decisions. The state of Oregon put 20... $233 million into Novalpina Capital, the private equity firm that owns NSO, making the state one of the largest investors. Obviously, boycotting and sanctions should be applied to all occupying forces, and it's messed up that Western entities pick and choose when to feel okay about it. And oops, it turns out they feel okay about it if white people are being attacked. This is also showing up in the refugee crisis, um, as Zoe started talking about, because not all the people in Ukraine are white, so not all the refugees are white, and that's creating a new white supremacist clusterfuck at the border. India's government has dispatched ministers to to Ukraine's borders after Indians seeking to cross into Poland reported that they were turned around and told to go to Romania instead. Citizens of several African countries report that they were pushed back from Poland because they are black. Ali Mboma, a student from Congo, said, quote, We had to stay outside, exposed to the freezing weather that they have here. Nobody tells us where we can find shelter, and we are left out in the cold, unquote. So refugees of color are, face- are facing rampant racial discrimination within the country and at the border crossings. Many have reported being forced off public transport, denied entry at border crossings, and even threatened at gunpoint because of the color of their skin. Most of the reporting is coming from the accounts of African citizens who came to the Ukraine to study and are using the hashtag Africans in Ukraine to document their experience. So I recommend checking that out. Um, So last November, Poland massed troops along its border, firing tear gas and water cannons to block thousands of refugees, most of them from the Middle East, from crossing into Poland, where they were seeking asylum in the EU. That contrasts with the bunch of refugees that Poland welcomed in just the last several days. It's also worth mentioning that during this time, since the invasion into Ukraine, The U.S.-backed Saudi government has bombed Yemen, the U.S.-backed Israeli government has attacked Syria, and the U.S. has bombed Somalia. So it really is what is getting coverage and who matters to the West. These like kind of it's I know that it feels like a philosophical discussion in some way, but really just like gender has uh its own structures in society, like these massive lineages of power that have equated between like the West and East really are important to understanding like what the fuck is going on and why it's, why does this matter over other things? So dialectical materialism you heard of it i know i'm such a sad because i was about to be like it isn't sound philosophical it's just facts yeah exactly 
Well, thanks for coming. Facts. Have you heard of them? Um, so yeah, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about how capitalism really is the root of this too. Cause yeah, while we have nations and borders and states, we also have multinational corporations that are profiting so intensely in the backdrop of all of this and then in turn lining the pockets of politicians in these Western countries in particular. So, first of all, it's important to remember that colonizers benefit from war. The French leader, Macron, was quoted, say, say, was quoted saying, quote, Putin wants to take us back to the age of empires, unquote. But let's understand that France still insists that 14 African nations must use the franc of the French colonies in Africa as their con- currency, maintaining 50% of assets in the French central bank. Okay, France. There are many economies whose currency is tied to a Western entity, and that, while a little bit more murky of an economic understanding of the benefactors and losers of war, is still significant. (sighs) So year after year, Congress ships more money off to the Pentagon. We talk about this a lot, but the U.S. spends far more on its military than any other country in the world. Last year, the Democratic-controlled House voted in favor of appropriating $768 billion for the 2022 defense budget. Of course, we say defense budget since it's the Department of Defense. It used to be called the Department of War, but that was changed in 1949, the same year the novel 1984 was published. LOL. (laughs) We love it here, folks. Um, So as a result, Military contractors building airplanes, bombs, getting started on the weapons of the future are making mass amounts of profits. U.S. companies, including Lockheed Martin and Boeing, sold more than $23.7 billion in arms last year to nearly 100 different countries. More than one-third of all contracts with the State Department now just go to five major weapons companies. Lockheed Martin, Boeing, General Dynamics, Raytheon, and Northrop Grumman. First of all, get better names. Second of all, get your hands roasted. (laughs) Get your hands out of the fucking world, you fucking assholes. Those five received more than $166 billion in contracts in fiscal year 2020 alone. This is important because at the end of the day, capitalism drives war. It drives these conflicts, and U.S. politicians are absolutely in cahoots with these companies. They are lobbied, wined, dined, and vacationed. So whenever we see any information about what's happening globally and any rhetoric around the U.S. being a peacekeeping force is just absolute nonsense. Obviously, the U.S. is also attacking its own citizens, most notably communities of color and black communities in particular, as well as trans and queer communities, as we will absolutely be talking about more next week. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, Kellen could not join us today, but they wanted us to just say no war but class war. And I think that is what we should all take away from this. Um, (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. But... Yeah, that's that's our episode. I hope this is helpful for folks. Um, and if you feel like you learned something, maybe send it to a friend. If you feel like supporting us on Patreon, that would be lovely. Um, it really helps us do more research intensive episodes like this. 
um, patreon.com slash season of the bitch. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram at season of the bee. Um, send us an email if, if you would like season of the bee at gmail.com. And you can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, whatever other apps the kids are using these days, <laughs> wherever you're listening to us right now. And that's our show. Yes. Love you guys. Love you. Love you. Bye. 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 Season of the Bitch. <laughs>